0: Brothers and sisters, I ask you to join your hearts with mine as we pray for God's illumination. Gracious Lord, our Father, for you have invited us to come to you in prayer and, uh, and address you as Father. What a privilege that is, Lord, and uh, let us never uh, stop realizing the privilege that we have by coming to you in prayer. And Lord, also never let us... Uh, Forget that you've given us your word, what a true blessing that is, that we we have the very heart of God in pages made available to us, that we might know you and know all that you would have us to do. And as Lord, as we take this time now as part of this worship service to, to meditate upon a portion of your scripture, to read it, and then to meditate upon it, we ask that your spirit might give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. And that uh, although we are amazed that you, as one of my brothers, reminded me this morning that you use the foolishness of preaching to do your work, Lord, we ask that your Spirit might work through our hearts, that the foolishness of preaching from this foolish man uh, might be an edification to these, your people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go now to the Scriptures reading for today, we will begin in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. And we will be reading from verses 5 through 10. That is Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. And brothers and sisters, I remind you that this is, in fact, the very Word of God. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, Then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And if you also turn with me now to our New Testament reading and our sermon text for today from The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 12, and we will be reading from verses 13 through 27. That is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. And once again, I remind you, this is the very word of God. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they are neither married or given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him and saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please be seated. It is truly good to be back. As I said, it's been uh, 13 months, uh, and not long after the last time I was here, I had a, a little cardiac event and uh, ended up having a double bypass, and I understand you prayed for me, and I'm truly thankful for that. And God was very gracious to me. I was speaking earlier that um, it's wonderful how God surrounds you. A, a member of my surgical team is a, a member at uh, redeemer in Danville where I attend with my wife when I'm not uh, preaching and uh, so he was on my surgical team and, a, and a, one of the elders there, Bob Garvin, many of you may know him, he was the uh, consulting vascular surgeon and he actually prayed with me as I was being wheeled in to the operating room. What a pr- privilege it is to have brothers and sisters around you at a time like that. Uh, but I'm feeling quite well now. Um for the past, say, six years, uh, since I uh, stopped, uh, closed down my church plant in West Virginia, I was a church planner myself, and um, I've been meditating in the Gospel of Mark. It's been some time, and so when I have the opportunity to preach, I, I've been preaching in the Gospel of Mark, and when I was here, I was preaching in the Gospel of Mark the last time, and it's, and it's, it's just a wonderful time I'm having, just the meditating and, and focusing in this one gospel uh, the story of Jesus and all he's uh, all he did. and it's just amazing time for me. And um, I'm at the point where I'm in that last week of Jesus' life on earth. And as, if you're familiar with the Gospels, as I know many of you are, uh, you know they go really fast until they get to that last week. And so for the past uh, year and a half, I'm still meditating upon that that last week. and and indeed, the last time I was here, we were in that last week in uh, Mark. So now we're we're in mark 12 and and what we are experiencing here as we look into this uh, port of the gospel is that Jerusalem is becoming more and more hostile to Jesus, at least the religious leaders are, and they're hostile to Jesus and his message and I find it interesting and instructive because I think uh, Jesus is experiencing something uh we're experiencing a little more and more in our own country and in our own culture. Uh, perhaps not quite to the level as our dear sisters experiencing in Burkina Faso that we pre- prayed about earlier, but it is getting a little more hostile here in our own country, especially among some, like uh, academics, and I'm sure there's many here that can have much better awareness of um, the growing hostility toward Christ and the gospel in academia. Um, and then we also have in the media, and in just maybe just in the general culture, or those who are commonly referred to as the, the cultural elite, there is growing hostility to the gospel. Um, I have a friend who uh, decided he felt called to kind of take this on a little bit. His, his name is Mike. And Mike is a Presbyterian minister, and he pastors a church down near Savannah, Georgia. Mike is in his 70s, and I guess he was bored, and he found out that in Georgia, seniors can attend their state colleges free of charge. So Mike decided he was going to enroll back in college, despite the fact that he has three master's degrees. And so he enrolled in the local college and is taking up degrees in philosophy and women's studies. He's a brave man. But he's choosing, he truly feels called to engage an influential part of our culture, that is growingly hostile to the gospel. And Mike uh, shares his experiences in a newsletter that he and his wife put together and they send out. And uh, and one of those newsletters spoke about an exchange that is really not unlike a lot of the exchanges he had. He was in a class and the topic, the theme they were talking about in that class is how Christianity is hostile to women. Um, And Mike took an opportunity to uh, defend Christianity in this matter and the truth of the gospel, uh, presenting a number of arguments, the fact that Christianity actually protects women, and going on to speak about how biblical roles as described in the scriptures are actually quite beneficial. And he does it in a a, trying, in a winsome manner, and um, certainly doesn't want to be Argumentative, but he feels an obligation to share the truth, so he's, he doesn 't go at it with hostility, but uh, unfortunately, the other side doesn 't play the same way and there, this time, as in most times, there was a great deal of hostility, a lot of name calling um, and yelling sometimes uh, among both students and teachers um, so Mike ended the event in this case in a way he frequently does he uh, He's paused and says, you know, I think we should get together and talk about this sometime. Would anyone want to gather together at at my house and maybe have some good food and just sit and talk about this? And one of the students said, yeah, I would. And another said, maybe, yeah, how about me too? And, And they made plans. And that's just what they did. What's happening here with Mike is the fact that he's not trying to be a troublemaker. I mean, the scriptures warn us against that uh, in Peter's letter. But he feels obligated to make a defense for the gospel. And also for him, it's, he sees opportunities. Opportunities for evangelism. Opportunities for hospitality, inviting these people into his home. And Lord willing, opportunities for discipleship. And I bring that up because I see that Jesus is doing some of that here in this passage. He's defending the gospel. And I think that's his focus here. and I, and I bring that up because I, I don't think, and I don't and then you'll see as we go through the passage, I'm not going to dwell specifically on some of the teaching because I don't think that was his main objective. His main objective was to defend the gospel and do so against some very learned and influential people that were growingly hostile to him. So let me set the stage for this passage. This is not long after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we refer to as Palm Sunday. And the religious leaders have become more and more concerned about Jesus' popularity. Um, He's become quite popular from the crowd. And what they're most concerned about is there are people in the crowd that are starting to refer to him as Messiah. That's a bit problematic. And then we had Jesus go into the temple and make those prophetic statements as he is driving out the money changers. And he's telling the religious leaders as he does that, that you, religious leaders, are just a bunch of robbers that are coming in the temple and hiding. Basically, he was saying that you, leaders, you are the ones that Jeremiah was prophesying against. For Jesus quoted from the prophet Jeremiah. And then he told the parable of the tenants, if you recall. And basically, he's telling the religious leaders, you are the tenants. And one day, the Lord is going to come deal with you and take away... The vineyard. Now, needless to say, the uh, religious leaders were a little bit upset now with Jesus. But what we read over and over again, they feared the crowds. But the crowds, because the crowds thought Jesus was some sort of prophet. He certainly was a well-known healer. So they were very afraid of Jesus. Jesus. So what they decide to do is they start coming after Jesus in waves. They send wave after wave of religious leaders. And each wave is led by different groups among the high council. And we're going to deal with two of those waves today. And Lord willing, if I come back again, perhaps sooner than 13 months, we'll uh, we'll deal with the next wave then. But in these two encounters Jesus had that we read today, when I was reading through them it brought to mind a bit of wisdom from the book of Proverbs. And I said, wow, this is a perfect example of this. Because otherwise, this bit of wisdom from the book of Proverbs is a little confusing. In fact, it sometimes seems a little contradictory. And it comes from Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. And I'm going to read those for you. This is what Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5 says. Answer not a fool according to his folly lest you be like him in yourself answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes now that sounds a little contradictory but i think we can let jesus going to show us how why that isn't contradictory right now so let's do that so we're going to follow a quick outline here in this looking at this passage the, we're going to start by looking at answer answer not a fool according to his folly. And then we're going to see how Jesus answers a fool according to his folly. Let's start with Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and Herodians and see how Jesus answers not a fool according to his folly. Now, as I said, this first group of challengers for Jesus, that they, meaning the Sanhedrin, the high council, sent to challenge Jesus, were, were among them was the Pharisees. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the Pharisees. Jesus had a number of counters with them. They were a major religious sect within Judaism at the time. Uh, most Pharisees did not come from wealthy or r- aristocratic families. They were actually more in line with the commoner, who would rise to promise, prominence through their learning, and they would become rabbis. Now, the Pharisees were people of the book. They, they accepted the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament for us, as scripture. But we learn, one thing we learn about the Pharisees as we read the Gospels is they had their own traditions, too. And at times, those traditions, the teaching of the rabbis, actually became much more important than scripture itself, it seems. More about that later. The other group was the Herodians. The Herodians were coming with the Pharisees. Now, the Herodians were not a religious sect at all. They were actually more of a political organization. And their goal was to have Herod restored to the throne in Judea. As the Romans had taken over that part, and Herod did have a small kingdom, but not over Judea. Now, what's interesting is the fact that the Pharisees and the Herodians really didn't get along. They didn't go along well at all. They saw Herod as an outsider, and indeed he was. He was actually from Idumea, which is south of Judea. And of course, being people of the book, the Pharisees believed, well, if there's going to be a king in Jerusalem, it's got to be a descendant of David, of which Herod was not. However, they had one thing in common, and that's the fact that they hated Jesus. Uh, all the way back in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and that angered the Pharisees who were present. And uh, they met with Herodians, and, and they decided to come up ways how they might destroy Jesus. So they've been working together against Jesus for a number of years already. But what I want to say about the Pharisees and the Herodians is that they were indeed fools. Fools. T- Isaiah tells us, for the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness and utter error concerning the Lord. And as I said, the Pharisees, though they claimed to follow Scripture, they would always or frequently raise their own traditions above Scripture. Jesus actually pointed this out to them all the way back in chapter 7. And they said, he said to them, your, your traditions, your man-made traditions, are allowing you to do ungodly things. That are contrary to the scriptures, and he goes on to explain that their iniquity is actually coming from within. And we read in Psalms that a fool says in his heart there is no God. And as I said, the Rhodians were really a political party, um, and they were attacking Jesus for political reasons. They saw because they feared that the people saw Jesus as a political king. They weren't concerned about God. At all, so the Pharisees and the Herodians are fools, and they are practicing folly. And their folly is trying to trap Jesus in his message. And I think it's interesting they come to him, and they they start with flattery. You know, they think we're going to flatter him and you know, get him off guard. And they so they t- tell him, "Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God." Now, they didn't believe that, or they'd have, been his, they'd have been his disciples, and rather than trying to destroy him. Uh, but what they were trying to do was draw Jesus into a political debate. They wanted to get Jesus to get involved in this controversial, but certainly secondary and worldly issue about taxes, Now, isn't that a common trap among some evangelicals today? Focusing too much on worldly issues. So there's a lot to be learned in Jesus. Now, we know Jesus wasn't going to do that. In fact, if you think about in the last days, the last few days, Jesus is so focused on the gospel. He knows he only has a few days left. So his focus is teaching his disciples and preparing them for life after he is gone. So he will not be deterred. So here is their foolish trap attempt for Jesus. They look at him and say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? I find it interesting that they repeat the question. Um, people refer to that commonly in in the world of uh, interviewing is Duper's delight, and they they they're just excited that they've got him trapped, and you know, so they're they're excited about it. But Jesus replies in a very de- deliberate way. Uh, he recognizes it for what it is: it's sheer hypocrisy, and the fact that they are trying to trap him, and this is nothing but evil intent. Intent. In fact, I don't even think they really were looking for an answer at all. You know, they certainly don't want information. They don't really care what Jesus said. They've already made up their minds about him and his message. What they were trying to do is just to get him to take a side and so they could use that against him. But Jesus is too smart for that, isn't he? And he will not answer these fools according to their folly. He's not going to be drawn into their deception. And he will not be deterred to get into political debates or other worldly issues. And in fact, his response is brilliant. I mean, at first he says, why are you putting me to the test? So he completely points out, I know what you're doing. You're not fooling me. And he he does a question. He uses a question, which he's taking charge. He's going to take charge of the conversation by asking this question. And then he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And he said, whose likeness is this? An inscription is this? And, of course, they say Caesar's. So he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and the God's the thi- God, the things that are God's. The point is, I'm not getting involved. This is not important. I have no obligation to, to fall into your trap. I'm not going to engage in your political folly. And I bring that up because... Um, Frequently, this passage is used as a, a text to talk about whether we, we should be paying taxes or not. And I, I really don't think that was Jesus' intent at all. I think there is teaching elsewhere in Scripture, which talks about our proper interactions with civil government. And I would look for applicate life applications there and not in this passage. But the real lesson here is to answer a fool, but not according to his folly. Especially when that folly will lead you away from what's important. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees in Herodians, Mark writes, they marveled at Jesus' response. At least they were smart enough to know that they were beat. Um, In fact, the Greek word there has an intensive prefix. It means they greatly marveled how much Jesus had defeated them, but they were, unfortunately for them, still fools. Um, again, the Proverbs, the fool, way of the fool is right in his own eyes, and a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, which is a good description for these. So answer not a fool according to his folly. Let's move on to Jesus' encounter with the, Pharise- or the Sadducees now and answering a fool according to his folly. So the next group to come after Jesus is the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were a priestly sect. They generally controlled the Sanhedrin, the high council there in Jerusalem. The two uh, high priests we read of in the Gospels, Annas and Caiaphas, were both of the Sadducees' sect. Interesting thing about the Sadducees, they, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as truly God's word. The Torah, the books of Moses... One thing we also know about the uh, Sadducees is they were staunchly supportive of free will. Um, We also know that in order to hold on to their aristocratic status, because that's where many of their families came from, they would compromise quite a bit with their Roman occupiers. These Sadducees were also, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were fools. Proverbs tells us that whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, and that was the Sadducees. You see, they they claimed to believe in the Torah, the first five books, but they rejected things like angels, spirits, and the resurrection, all of which is taught in the first five books of the Bible. Scripture also tells us that a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but in only expressing their opinion. And we see in the Sadducees men whose opinion was often driven by their attempts to maintain their aristocratic status. They weren't concerned about learning about God. They weren't weren't concerned about remaining true to his word, even though they claimed to serve him. Like the Herodians and the Pharisees, the Sadducees are trying to trick Jesus here, and they want to divide his following. I think. I think what they're trying to do is, we if we can divide the crowds and split them up, maybe get some of them to stop following Jesus. Then it might be easier to deal with him. And they wanted to do is divide between those who support the Sadducees and those the Pharisees and others um, over this issue of the resurrection. They also think that if they can catch Jesus in his understanding of the word of God, that might work against him. Of course, they failed to realize that Jesus is the word of God. So, they developed their own trick. And their trick is based on what's called the Leverett Law. And we read about it in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and it goes like this. It's, the Leveret Law was to provide descendants for a man who died childless. It was a unique civil law in the kingdom of Israel. It's no longer valid. certainly not valid for us in the church. And what it said is if a brother dies and has no son, has no heir, his wife shouldn't marry outside the family, but the man's brother should marry her. And that the first son would actually be a descendant of the dead brother so that his name would not be blotted out in Israel. So based on this law... The Sadducees postulate this scenario. They ask Jesus, "There are seven brothers, and being good Jews, they're going to follow the Leverett law. They were, and they all eventually were married to the same women, or the same woman, and eventually they all die. So, Jesus, in the resurrection, which they didn't believe in anyway, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be since?" She was married to all seven. It makes me think when they came up with it, this is probably a trick they've used many times before. You see, they probably battled even with the Pharisees because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and they probably used this before. Um, But it was folly. And Jesus recognized it as such. It's a folly because it was a direct challenge against the word of god and the gospel now this is different than the folly of the pharisees and the rhodians you know which was about a political and an external a worldly issue this is a direct issue about the word of god so it must be answered jesus must answer these fools according to their folly and so that's what he does he engages them and once again jesus is quite direct i, I just You've got to love the directness of Jesus. He basically tells them you're wrong. He starts with that. You're wrong. And you're wrong because of two things. You don't know the scriptures. And remember, the Sadducees only claimed to follow the the Torah, the first five books. But even then, they seemed to pick and choose what they were going to believe in. So they didn't know the scriptures. And Jesus also says, you don't know the power of God. Now, remember, the, the Sadducees, as I said, were a group that were very staunchly proponents of free will. Well, in such, they, they reject the sovereignty of God. If you reject the sovereignty of God, you take away a key characteristic of God, which makes God no God at all. So they're, they're practically fools who say there is no God. So Jesus responds directly to their folly, and he, he challenges their beliefs. And Because Jesus says, for when they rise from the dead, these brothers, this woman, resurrection, which Jesus is going to then support, but he says, they are neither given in marriage, neither marry or given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Interesting he brings that up because, well, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels either. So he taxed them directly. And then he goes on. And hey, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? You say you follow it. The passage about the bush. How God said to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I love that how he brackets everything and you're wrong and you're wrong. That's his point. You're wrong. Mark doesn't record their response to this. Um, Matthew does, and he says they were amazed. Because once again, they they had to know, they had to honestly know he had, in fact, defeated them. Luke writes that some some of the scribes who were there who were experts in the law said, Teacher, you've spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him any questions. So he's defeated the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the uh, the Sadducees, and they're 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 done. They can't. They realize they can't defeat him. But unfortunately for them, they all remain fools. Now, before I go on, I guess I should address um, what about this teaching about marriage in heaven. I, those of us who are married or want to be married sometime probably are con- wondering about that. Yeah, what, what about this? And Again, I, I don't think Jesus' intent here was to provide a comprehensive uh, understanding of marriage in heaven. Um, his, te- his intent was to answer a fool according to his folly. Um, I believe we can derive something, I guess, from what Jesus says in response to the Sadducees. Uh, it appears that marriage and marital relations in heaven might be a little bit different than what they are here on earth. I'm, I'm not sure. He doesn't go into detail. The one thing I do know that I'm comforted about is, uh, no matter what, heaven is going to be a place of ultimate glory and happiness. It's, it's going to be a place without tears and add sadness. So whatever form our marriages will, will take, uh, it's going it's to be wonderful. It's going to be wonderful. Different, maybe, but better, even better than it is now. So, back to our text. Uh, do you see the differences? Do you see the differences of these two events? You know? And do you see and do you think it you can apply when you, it is not right to answer a fool according to his folly and when it is right to answer a fool according to his folly? And as I said, that's, that's an important consideration. I think that, that we must... Give some thought to because, again, I say that our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel. So we've got to choose our battles. And we've got to choose them wisely. And we need to do so not based on our own minds, not based on our own feelings, but of the word of God. Because there are some fools and there are some controversies that I don't think we need to be engaging in. You know, we don't need to be involving ourselves as as Christians or as Christ's church in debating between conflicting worldly arguments based on vain philosophies. We're supposed to be like Mike, only because Mike is trying to be like Jesus. And we may not be called to do quite what my friend Mike is doing to enroll in college. uh, Perhaps some of you are. (laughs) Or to take on professors and students, though some of you might be inclined to do that and called to do that. But we do all have something we are called to do, and and we can find that in Peter's first letter. And it's a good reminder to us. And I I asked, I suggested you commit this to memory. And, And Peter tells us, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord and as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of you for the hope, the reason for the hope that is in you. Peter's saying, we need all of us. We need to be prepared to give a response for the gospel. That's our hope. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, and there's, a, there's an add-on to this passage, which I think is very important. And I think a lot of people forget this, and it's, it's unfortunate. Peter says, but do so with gentleness and respect. I think that's really important. Because I think all too often, some people will profess Christ, do him an injustice by forgetting to be gentle and respectful, even to the unbeliever. Remember, we're called even to love our enemies. So let's keep in mind this command from Peter and the example of Jesus as, we're, as we engage the world in which we live and consider when we should not answer a fool according to his folly and when we should answer a fool according to his folly. Let us pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you for your aid in this world in our culture that it seems to be increasingly hostile to the gospel of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very gospel that saved us and has drawn us together as your body to worship you. We need your help to discern how to respond. And how to live in this culture. Lord, you you tell us we are elect exiles. This is not our home. But indeed, you have us here. And you'll have us here to witness to your son who took on flesh, endured the humiliation of life and life under the law. Yet he obeyed it perfectly and fulfilled all things, the things that we can never fulfill. Father, we're so grateful. He, he, He did it on our behalf. And he gives it to us. He gives us the righteousness that comes under the law because he... Achieved it, and we would never can. And he grants us, he says, I give you my righteousness, and I take your sin upon me through faith. Father, we help us to dwell upon this. This is the gospel. This is the most important thing. The gospel. It was so important. You took on flesh and died. Help us never to forget that. And empower us, Lord. Help us to know when we should defend it. And defend it well. To your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.